0: Section 2 of the American Book of the Dog. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. The American Book of the Dog by G.O. Shields, editor. Section 2. The English Setter this article by bernard waters kennel editor of the american field and author of modern training handling and kennel management regarding the origin of the english setter nothing is known to a certainty but in this particular the absence of knowledge does not differ from that concerning all other old breeds of dogs that the english setter is a very old breed is beyond question as will be shown more fully here and after by reference to some ancient literature on the subject but that the ipse dixit of one or two ancient writers should be given so much credence is unaccountable however the obscurity which envelops the past quite as effectually prevents disproving any errors in the statements of the old writers as it does the proving of their statements to be correct This is more particularly noticeable, as in the present day, captious critics are ever ready to differ from those who are more or less recognized as authorities, while accepting without question the sayings of writers of two or three hundred years ago. According to the popular belief, one which is supported by nearly every author of modern sporting literature, the English setter is supposed to have originated in the Spaniel ancestry." To show on what this belief is founded, a few excerpts from recognized authorities will be presented. Stonehenge, in his work, The Dogs of the British Islands, edition of 1867, treats of the setter as follows, quote, as some difference of opinion appears to exist with regard to setters we have determined thoroughly to satisfy ourselves as to their origin and best form and we have called all the best authorities to our assistance we propose to place the result of our labours before the public and to add our own conclusions there is no doubt that the sport of hawking was known and practised by the ancient britons and that the roman was totally ignorant of that science but the invader at once came to the conclusion that the system might be improved and introduced the land spaniel if not the water dog also into this country these dogs roused the game and this was all that the hawker required of them in those early days but in after years as we shall see dogs were required to point or in the language of the quaint old writer so stop and fall down upon their bellies and having done so when within two or three yards then shall your setter stick and by no persuasion go further till yourself come in and use your pleasure at first then without doubt the spaniel was merely used as a springer for the hawk which was subsequently neglected for the net and the propensity of the dog to pause before making his dash at game was cultivated and cherished by breeding and selection, until at last, gratified by observing the action of the net, he yielded his natural impulse of springing at all, and set or lay down to permit the net to be drawn over him. After this, the hawker trained his spaniel to set. Then he cast off his hawks, which ascended in circles and waited on until his master roused the quarry from its concealment when she pounced upon it like a pistol shot when used either with hawks or for the net especially in the latter case a far heavier dog answered the purpose than what we call the high ranging setter the net enveloped a whole covey in its meshes and a few manners would allow of many coveys being taken in a day whilst the disentangling the birds and securing them allowed time for the heavy dog to rest and regain his wind richard surflet who wrote in 1600 gives us the following information writing of the field or land spaniels quote of which sith before no author hath fully entreated he describes him as gentle loving and courteous to man more than any other sort of dog whatsoever and as loving to hunt the wing of any bird especially partridge pheasant quails rails poots and such like He tells us we are to choose him by his shape, beauty, metal, and cunning hunting, his shape being discerned in the good composition of his body, as when he hath a round, thick head, a short nose, a long, well-compassed, and hairy ear, broad and side lips, a clear red eye, a thick neck, broad breast, short and well-knit joints, round feet, strong claws, highly dew-clawed, good round ribs, a gaunt belly, a short broad back, a thick bushy and long-haired tail, and all his body gently long and well-haired. His beauty is discerned in his colour, of which the motleys or pied are the best, whether they be black and white, red and white, or liver-hued and white, for to be all of one colour, as all white, or all black, or all red, or all liver-hued, without any other spot, is not so comely in the field, although the dogs notwithstanding may be of excellent cunning his mettle is discerned in his free and untiring laborsome ranging beating a field over and over and not leaving a furrow untrodden or one unsearched where any haunt is likely to be hidden and when he doth it most courageously and swiftly with a wanton playing tail and a busy laboring nose neither desisting nor showing less delight in his labor at night than he did in the morning and his cunning hunting is discerned by his casting about heedfully and running into the wind of the prey he seeketh by his stillness and quietness in hunting without babbling or barking. But when he is upon an assured and certain haunt by the manner of his ranging and when he compasseth a whole field about at the first and after lesseneth and lesseneth the circumference till he hath trod every part and brought the whole circuit to one point and by his more temperate and leisurely hunting when he comes to the first scent of the game sticking upon it and pricking it out by degrees not opening or questing by any means but whimpering and whining to give his master a warning of what he scenteth and to prepare himself and his hawks for the pleasure he seeketh and when he is assured of his game then to quest out loudly and freely after describing spaniels which delight in plains or the open fields and others more adapted for cover he goes on to say there is another sort of land spaniels which are called setters and they differ nothing from the former but in instruction and obedience for these must neither hunt range nor retain more or less than as the master appointeth taking the whole limit of whatsoever they do from the eye or hand of their instructor they must never quest at any time what occasion soever may happen but as being dogs without voices so they must hunt close and mute and when they come upon the haunt of that they hunt they shall so stop and fall down upon their bellies and so leisurely creep by degrees to the game till they come within two or three yards thereof or so near that they cannot press nearer without danger of retrieving then shall your setter stick and by no persuasion go further till you yourself come in and use your pleasure now the dogs which are to be made for this pleasure should be the most principal best and lustiest spaniel you can get both of good scent and good courage yet young and as little as may be made acquainted with such hunting There is no doubt that the setter is a spaniel, brought by a variety of crosses, or rather, let us say, of careful selections, to the size and form in which we now find him. He is the most national of all our shooting dogs, and certainly has existed for four centuries. His form probably has improved. The net used in different countries required the same character of dog. He might be slow, heavy or slack, and soon fatigued, but he would answer the purpose. But when shooting flying superseded the use of the net, the Moors, the Grampians, the Norfolk turnips before they were sown in drills, the Irish potato fields, the Low Scottish Wolds, or the Fens of Lincoln, all required dogs of different types, accommodated to their several hunting grounds. End quote the description of the setter's manner of hunting is both quaint and spirited yet there is nothing whatever in the writings quoted which implies that the setter had a spaniel origin palpably the setter was then an established breed as shown by the assertion that there is another sort of land spaniels which are called setters That setters and spaniels should be classed as being of the same family several centuries ago is not remarkable, nor is it remarkable that a sporting writer's dicta at that time should be unquestioned, since there were but few of them, and people at large were uneducated in such matters. With all the advantages of a sporting press, a multitude of writers, and extensive sporting literature, and numerous annual bench shows and field trials as educational institutions, there have grown up a wonderful diversity of opinion and misinformation in respect to the different breeds at the present day. It is not strange, therefore, that in the year sixteen hundred Richard Surflet classed the setter as a spaniel, although as mentioned herein before, he refers to this breed as another sort of land spaniel. In the chapter on the Sussex Spaniel in the same work, Stonehenge says quote, about the year fifteen fifty five a Duke of Northumberland. Trained one to set birds for the net, and soon afterward the setter was produced, either by selection or by crossing the Talbot hound and spaniel. The utter absurdity and thoughtlessness of such an illogical statement is self evident to anyone. A Duke trained a Sussex spaniel to point, and soon afterward the breed of setters was produced. Why could not all breeds be thus taught to point? This is rendered still more absurd by the fact, well known to all students of natural history, that an educational act is not transmitted to the progeny. That Stonehenge was not quite positive in his inferences is shown by his remarks in the revised edition of the same work, published in 1878, wherein he treats the subject as follows, the setter is without doubt either descended from the spaniel or both are offshoots of the same parent stock originally that is before the improvements in the gun introduced the practice of shooting flying it is believed that he was merely a spaniel taught to stop or set as soon as he came upon the scent of the partridge when a net was drawn over the covey by two men Hence, he was made to drop close to the ground, an attitude which is now unnecessary. There is thus an absence of positiveness in his later opinions on the subject. In fact, there is no proof adduced whatever to support the speculation. Gordon Stables briefly disposes of the subject in The Practical Kennel Guide as follows. Quote, the setter used to be called a setting spaniel, and was known in England long before the pointer, and was probably first introduced by the Romans. Laverack, in his work The Setter, says quote, I am of the opinion that all setters have more or less originally sprung from our various strains of spaniels, and I believe most breeders of any note agree that the setter is nothing more than a setting spaniel. How the setter attained his sufficiency of point is difficult to account for, and I leave that question to wiser heads than mine to determine. The setter is said and acknowledged by authorities of long-standing to be of greater antiquity than the pointer. If this be true, and I believe it is, the setter cannot at first have been crossed with the pointer to render him what he is. A more modern writer, one who is generally very sound and always instructive, Mr. Hugh Dalziel, treats the subject at some length. The following quotations give the main points of his position. Difficult, as it admittedly is, to trace the history of any of our modern breeds of dogs, although in so many instances their manufacture, if I may use the term, into their present form is of comparatively recent date there is in respect to the setter a general agreement among writers and breeders that our present dog is largely derived from the spaniel indeed the proofs of this are conclusive the family likeness is in many respects yet strongly preserved and in some kennels where they have kept pretty much to their own blood following different lines from our show and field trial breeders this is markedly so The writer on setters in the Sportsman's Cabinet, 1802, tells us that in his day in the northern counties, the pointer was called the smooth spaniel, the setter the rough spaniel, and although he speaks of this localism with surprise, as a misnomer, it was really the preservation of an old distinction, the setters or setting spaniels being so named to divide them from their congeners used for different work and named cockers and springers. End quote: Somewhat inconsistently with the conclusion that the proofs are conclusive, Mr. Dalziel continues: Whether the modern setter has been produced from the spaniel by careful selection or by a cross with the pointer or some other breed, it is difficult to decide End quote. In the American Kennel and Sporting Field, the late Arnold Burges voiced the common belief in the following: Quote, "the best of modern writers among whom i may mention stonehenge laverick idstone all say that the setter is a direct descendant of the land spaniel and speak of a setting spaniel as the first setter there is no doubt that this is the correct theory and that our setter is a pure unadulterated but improved spaniel" End quote briefly nearly all modern writers owners and breeders hold these opinions in the main there being some variation here and there but however much these beliefs may vary one from another they all have their inspiration in the facts that the setter was in ancient times called a setting spaniel and that he has some analogies in common with the spaniel a few of the objections against the theory that the aboriginal ancestry of the setter was in the spaniel may be mentioned first the arguments and proofs seduced are founded on such imperfect data with no contemporaneous support that they could be applied with equal force in proving that the spaniel is a variation of the setter setting spaniel might be a localism as was calling the pointer a smooth spaniel Second, those who assert that the setter is an improved spaniel are not positive or consistent in the assertion, and depend more upon the numerous repetitions of matters of hearsay, all of which center more to the inclusive facts that some centuries ago the setter was called a setting spaniel than upon any absolute knowledge. Third, if the land spaniel had such an inherent tendency to variation, it would undoubtedly have multiplied the variations, thus forming numerous sub-varieties or distinct breeds. It is well known, however, that the setter breeds true to race forms, as also does the spaniel. Fourth, if the spaniel did throw off a variety, for without some variation there could not have been any change of form, it would probably have lost, by intercrossing with the parent type, by the natural tendency of animal organizations to revert to parental forms, or by the destruction of the variation as being mongrel this conjecture is not improbable since no breeder at the present day would consider his stock pure if the progeny were not true to type nor would he allow such progeny to exist therefore there is no probability that such variation would be cultivated and preserved even if it existed fifth there would in all probability be in existence numerous intermediate gradations of forms from the setter to the springer showing more or less perfectly the different stages of transition for it is hardly tenable to suppose their total destruction leaving the two breeds distinctly established without any connecting link between them sixth there is an absurdity in the statement that a spaniel was taught to point and that soon thereafter the instinct became general for if one educational matter became hereditary why did not all others become hereditary at the same time and in the same manner seventh the pointing instinct as exhibited by the pointer and setter is applied for their own profit in hunting and has no reference whatever to the purposes of the gun In advancing on their prey, of which game birds are but a part, setters, and for that matter pointers also, must approach cautiously on the birds which are lying close and concealed from view. The dog must rely solely on his powers of scent in his approach to the place of concealment, and must locate the birds with precision to make a success of his effort as he approaches the birds his muscles become tense preparatory to the spring to kill and he stops for a few moments to gauge the distance and location of the birds then springs with astonishing quickness and precision and not infrequently effects a capture if he has the birds accurately located as he draws to them the preparatory pause technically called the point will be very short or perhaps there will be none This phenomenon is such as is exhibited by dogs in training and not such as is exhibited by broken dogs. It requires a long course of training to bring the dog to steadiness on his points to subserve the purposes of the sportsman. But this only shows that by training the sportsman has diverted to his own use a quality which is an aid to the dog in gaining a food supply in a state of nature, the dog being a carnivorous animal that the act of pointing so far as its practical application is concerned is but partially instinctive is demonstrated by the various methods which the setter has in pursuing his prey. For instance, when drawing on the trail of birds, he is mute and shows the greatest caution in avoiding making any noise, knowing that noise would alarm the prey and destroy all chances, as a chase after birds would be hopeless. In chasing rabbits, which are a part of his prey, and which he hunts with greater zest than birds, he gives tongue merrily and makes no attempt at caution. That this trait of pointing may also be acquired is a well-attested fact. The writer had a bull-terrier, which was an excellent squirrel-dog. From seeing an occasional ruffled grouse shot, he learned that they were objects of pursuit. When he struck the trail... He would rode cautiously and silently, making a point at the proper place with excellent judgment, and in this manner, by his intelligence, giving many good shots. On squirrels, he was noisy and rapid in his work. There are a number of such instances mentioned by authors. Yet the popular belief in respect to the purposes of the pointing instinct is opposed to these views. The following from British Dogs contains the gist of the popular teachings and belief on the subject. I look upon the form exhibited by pointers and some setters when standing to game as an inherited habit, the result of education. The stop or point voluntarily made by our dogs now is the inherited result of training the breed, generation after generation, to forego the spring onto the game natural to a carnivorous animal in order to serve the gun. End quote. This is quoted as being an accurate expression of how the pointing instinct was developed. Therefore, it will serve as an expression of the general belief and not as that of a single individual. It does not explain in the least how the instinct originated, for at the beginning it could not be an inherited habit the result of education. It is still more inexplicable when we remember that so few individuals were taught to point. Moreover, educational properties are not transmitted, If so, the constant training which dogs have received in domestic life for innumerable generations would be inherited. That they are not can readily be seen when comparing the behavior of a dog which has been reared in and about the house from puppyhood with that of one which has been reared exclusively in a kennel. Other educational acts which are constantly taught to all dogs are not inherited therefore why should an act taught to a few dogs become instinctive in a breed of dogs it is against all experience that an educational act taught to one generation should be transmitted to succeeding generations the horse through many centuries has been given a thorough education one which included a much larger percentage of the breed than does the education of setters, yet the cults of today have to be educated precisely in the same manner as their parents were. Thus, if one educational quality became instinctive by education, why did not all other educational qualities, which were equally or more uniformly taught, also become instinctive? This merely shows an inconsistency in the position but even without this it is untenable otherwise the teachings of naturalists must give way to the speculations of those who have given the matter superficial consideration darwin in the origin of species when speaking of instinct says domestic instincts are sometimes spoken of as actions which have become inherited solely from long continued and compulsory habit but this is not true Again, as in the case of corporeal structure, and conformably to my theory, the instinct of each species is good for itself, but has never, as far as we can judge, been produced for the exclusive good of others. In other words, an animal never has an instinct for the benefit of some other animal, instincts being directly to the benefit of the individual having them, or the preservation of the species. This subject admits of much greater scope in treating it, but sufficient has been advanced already to give the reader a fair general knowledge of all that is known on the origin of the setter. He may have had a spaniel ancestry, but whatever his origin, it is now in the realms of speculation. At best there is no relation whatever between such a trifling cause and such a great and unrelated effect.' However, the main proofs to sustain the belief that the setter had a Spaniel ancestry are fully set forth, so that the reader can form his own conclusions. When carefully analyzed, there is but one conclusion, i.e. that the origin of the setter is not known. The development of the English setter and his rise to his present high place in the appreciation of sportsmen are matters of a comparatively recent period. Numerous strains existed in England, each of which had its admirers and supporters, and for each special claims of excellence were made. In this country, the stages of transition in the development of the English setter have been somewhat irregular in respect to progress, but at the present time it is generally conceded that the high-class English setter, as he exists in this country, has no superiors. The first impetus given to the general improvement of the English setter in America was due to the importation of some of the best blood from England and the coincident growth of field trials. The Laveracks, a strain so-called from having been bred and preserved by the late Mr. Laverack through his lifetime, had a great deal of prominence in the sporting world, although the purity of his breeding and consequently the pedigrees which he presented to the public were questioned as to their correctness by prominent breeders, and it would seem with a great deal of justness, for there are many matters incidental to them which it is difficult to explain, consistently with Mr. Laverack's pretensions. The first field trials the inception of general progress in field sports in america were run near memphis tennessee in 1874 under the auspices of the tennessee sportsmen's association for four or five years thereafter general progress was slow breeders having so many conflicting interests and theories in regard to breeding as to which were the best strains that it required a certain length of time to determine which were the best dogs and which the best methods of training thus approximating to at least a general agreement on sporting matters although there are still many which are unsettled because of the whims preferences prejudices beliefs different needs and training of sportsmen, it is a matter for congratulation that they are educated to a point where differences of opinion are now confined to large classes of sportsmen, one class against the other, where a few years ago it was each individual's opinion arrayed against those of all others. The field trials furnished an available public test to determine the claims of the different breeds and strains to superiority. The importation of the blue bloods, so called, led to the keenest of competitions in the field trials with the native stock, the result demonstrating the superiority of the imported stock to the native. The win of a dog at a field trial added largely to his monetary value, as well as to the satisfaction of his owner in having the best, or one of the best, dogs, thus establishing a standard for others to strive for. In this manner, the spirit of rivalry or emulation which the competition engendered created a widespread and active demand for better dogs as to field work and purer blood as to breeding. This, in turn, resulted in engaging breeders in efforts to supply the demand, and as the blue bloods added to their victories over the native setter, the latter dropped more and more out of the competition, until at the present day they are seldom represented in the field trials and but little in the pedigrees of all the favorite lines of breeding in most instances not at all en passant it may be said that the native setter had many admirable qualities but was chiefly deficient in the speed and dash of the imported stock the llewellyn setter a cross of the duke rabe blood on the laverick a strain of english setters bred by mr llewellyn england found greater favor with sportsmen in this country than any other strain and the fine-bred english setter in this country at the present time has more of this blood than any other although it has largely lost its claim to the name of llewellyn that is a cross of the duke rob blood on the Laverack. With field trials there came a demand for a higher grade of skillful training, and as the occupation became fairly remunerative as well as congenial to men who were passionately fond of shooting, it rapidly was monopolized by them and soon reduced to a fine art, at least in so far as the complex composition of a dog's nature would permit the special characteristics of the english setter are his beauty of form his rich silky glossy coat his intelligence his merry dashing manner of hunting in the field his keen scent and his remarkable judgment in the application of his efforts the adaptability to the character of the grounds and the habits of the game birds which he is hunting Combined with these are great powers of physical endurance, which he usually retains until the encroachments of age impair them. In motion and on point, the English setter is the embodiment of beauty, spirit, and grace. The high-class English setter finds and locates his birds with great rapidity when he once catches the scent of them. In fact, any habitual hesitancy or pottering are elements of certain defeat in a competition." As shown by the records of public competitors, the character and extent of ownership, and the preference and opinions of the most expert sportsmen, the English setter is superior of all the other breeds for work on game birds. In breeding setters, if superior field performances are the qualities to be attained, the rules for guidance are simple. Breed only to dogs of the highest individual merit breeding to a poor dog simply because his brother or other blood relation is a known good performer is the most fallacious theory in breeding the poor dog is much more predisposed to transmit the poor qualities which he has than the good qualities of his related blood which he has not by such course the best strain can be in time rendered utterly worthless Without this care in selection or material of the proper quality to select from, but little progress, if any, can be made in improving the stock. The setter, being a working dog, should be bred on as near a working type as possible, a type which admits of a combination of speed, strength, and endurance. The elegant racing lines of the greyhound admit of the exercise of great speed, but it cannot be sustained for any comparatively great length of time. The setter requires a symmetrical but stronger construction, and demands of his work requiring that he should be able to work all day or several days in succession at a reasonably fast pace. Gradually, however, the breed of English setters has been diverging into two types, one encouraged by bench shows, the other by the demands of practical field sportsmen. The former is of the cobier type, with a preference for a needless profusion of feather, fashion having, in a measure, taken the setter from his domain as a working dog and transferred him to domestic life as a pet and companion, a position to which his docility, intelligence, symmetry of form, beautiful coat, and affectionate disposition eminently qualify him. Bench shows and field trials have become established institutions and gain a stronger and wider support year by year. The preparation of a dog for either entails a great deal of skillful labor and diligent attention. For a bench show, a dog must be in the highest physical condition, therefore in the highest state of health. These can only be accomplished by regular feeding, exercise, grooming, and cleanliness in his yard and sleeping quarters, particulars which, by the way, should be observed at all times, whether preparing for a competition or not. A setter, when mature, should be fed but once a day. This is sufficient either at work or rest, but it should be good, wholesome food and all that the dog will consume. A liberal portion of meat may be used. In fact, when at work, the dog may with advantage be fed on a meat diet exclusively. During the closed session, the dog, if confined, should have as large a yard as possible for the purpose of exercising, and thereto the owner should give him a run night and morning. The dog is a nervous, restless animal, generally of unlimited energy and spirits, and plenty of exercise is an absolute requirement to keep him in good health. In connection with feeding a dog, it may be mentioned that it is a mistake to give a dog a large, hard bone. The dog will gnaw it by the hour, but he gets no nourishment and wears out his teeth. Young dogs may be frequently seen with their front teeth worn to the gums from the effect of this kind of misdirected kindness. Soft bones, which the dog can crush easily, such as the ribs of sheep, etc., keep the teeth white and clean and gratify the dog's craving for bones. Good, clean straw makes an excellent bedding. It should be changed as often as it gets broken or soiled. About twice a week will usually be often enough, unless the weather should be very rainy and the ground muddy when it should be changed oftener. Where but one or two dogs are kept, any dry, clean outbuilding will do for a kennel, or a small kennel can be made at little expense. The field training of a dog is an art on which there is a voluminous literature. The modern trainer has improved greatly on the methods of his predecessors, and the American trainer of the present has no peer in his special calling. A calling which has its hardships, however, for it is shorn of all artificial advantages— which are incidental to training on a preserve in England. The trainer, when the training season begins, locates in some favorable section of the south, where he has an abundance of old fields, open and cover, and where birds are known to be plentiful, thus training his dogs in actual hunting. In this manner, they get their education in practical work. The trainer has to reconcile himself frequently to the discomforts of poor lodgings, worse fare, and isolation from congenial civilization. But fondness for the dog and gun overcomes all the hardships of the profession, and the trainer often cannot be induced to engage in more remunerative and settled occupation. The prices for training a dog vary from $100 to $150, according to the perfection in training which the owner desires, or the reputation of the trainer, winning at field trials, adding to a trainer's reputation, and to the demand for his services. An English setter of good breeding, showing superior merit and winning in competition, is worth from $500 to $2,000, taking the sales of the past few years as a standard by which to judge." The training of a dog requires from five to six months to complete under the tuition of a skillful trainer. When the dog is ten months or a year old, he is at the best age for training, having then sufficient physical development to endure the work and mental capacity to understand it. The methods of training in vogue at the present time differ radically from those of a few years ago. Then it was assumed that a dog should be trained in every detail, even in the manner in which he should perform his work. Now the dog is taught to direct his efforts in the interest of the gun, but the manner, being natural to him, is developed to its greatest capacity, simply by giving the dog ample experience to exercise it, for without ample experience to learn methods of hunting after his own manner, he cannot make progress in skillful hunting." the most essential qualities in hunting are pointing and ranging to become a skillful performer and proficient in the first quality the dog must have delicate scenting powers and great judgment in using them to be a good ranger he must have good speed which is well and uniformly maintained and great stamina to sustain long continued periods of work to these he must add great intelligence to the end that his efforts are directed with judgment, the intelligence displayed in his methods of being commonly called bird sense. A dog possessing the latter quality will be incomparably superior to one without it, even if the latter is equal or superior in other qualities. A dog having bird sense hunts out his ground in the most thorough yet intelligent manner— He takes his course from one likely place to another, makes a circuit about likely fields to strike the trail of anything which may be feeding, avoids bare, unpromising ground in his casts, and always takes advantage of the wind in beating about in thicket or open. The dog which beats about without any plan in his work, hunting promising and unpromising ground alike, never becomes a skillful finder. The dog having bird sense always has a good memory and if hunted on any grounds once or twice will remember the location of every bevy found and hunt them out afterward with remarkable quickness. Therein lies the great superiority in this country of intelligent ranging over the artificial method of beating out the ground, called quartering, in which the dog is required to beat out the ground at right angles to the course of his handler, thus going constantly in parallel lines, except when turning at the ends, the distance between the parallel lines being theoretically the range of the dog's nose. Thus a dog with keen, sensitive functions of smell could take wider parallels than one whose nose was dull or poor. In this country, no attention is paid to the teaching of quartering by the excellent handler, and indeed it is not required. If a dog in hunting out large tracts of country cannot do so intelligently, he is imperfect as a hunter and no artificial methods of ranging can supply the natural deficiency. In England, quartering is useful for the reason that the grounds and manner of cultivation favor it, but what in this respect is advantageous there is not so here. The education of a dog should begin when about 10 months or a year old. It should not be inferred that nothing whatever should be done before such age, on the contrary, a great deal is taught, but it is done by taking the puppy out for exercise runs, and by associating him with his master, thus enabling him to learn a great deal from his own observational powers. Hence, a puppy should never be kept chained in a kennel if it is possible to avoid it. At ten months or a year old, the puppy has outgrown many of the frivolous habits of puppyhood, besides having more physical and mental capabilities. The trainer first gives the pupil a thorough course of yard training, teaching him to drop, which means to lie down, to order and signal, to hold up, meaning to rise, to order and signal, to go on or high on, to walk at heel, to come in, and to retrieve, although the latter accomplishment is better left out till his second hunting season. To teach the dog to drop, tie a cord about three or four feet long to his collar, hold the cord in the left hand, and whip in the right. Give the order, drop, and a moderate cut of the whip on the shoulder at the same instant. Repeat this till the dog lies down, being particularly careful to avoid hurry and to use the ordinary tone of voice after a few moments speak to him kindly and give the order hold up be careful to guard against such noise or violence as will frighten the dog when done properly no fears are excited let the lesson last about 15 or 20 minutes then pet the dog a few times before giving him his liberty so that his fears if he have any will be dissipated give two lessons each day regularly and regular progress will soon be apparent high on or go on is easily taught when exercising the dog the order which frees him from restraint being consonant with his inclinations always is soon learned more time should be taken to teach obedience to the order heel during the yard-breaking as if taught thoroughly the dog may become habituated to walking behind his master and may come in from hunting whenever uncomfortably fatigued or warm and thus acquire a very annoying trait which will be difficult to cure or may possibly be incurable When actual field work begins, it is the better way to let the dog have his own way for several days and, if he be timid or indifferent, several weeks, if necessary, to develop his courage or interest. Coincidentally, he is learning methods of pursuit and a general knowledge of details pertaining to hunting. The dog is gradually brought into subjection by regular hunting and skillful use of the check cord and whip, always avoiding such punishment as will destroy the dog's ardor or excite violent fear of his master as to the manner of roding and pointing it should be left entirely to the dog the effort of the trainer being directed towards establishing steadiness on the point and ranging to the gun if the trainer be constantly endeavoring to establish some ideal manner of working he will find himself engaged in the most profitless wearisome and endless task for instance if the dog roads his birds naturally it is a loss of time to endeavor to make him proficient in hunting for the body scent with a high nose the aim should be to develop the capabilities which the dog has rather than the capabilities which some other dog has and which he has not retrieving is taught either by what is called the natural method or by force in the former advantage is taken of the dog's fondness for play during puppyhood an object commonly a ball or a glove is thrown out and the puppy runs after it takes it in his mouth and is ready for a frolic by degrees he is brought to fetch it to command with age the playfulness disappears and with regular lessons the obedience from regular discipline becomes habitual the majority of trainers and handlers order their dogs too much. The fewer orders that can be given, the better, and the most artistically trained dog is the one which will work steadily to the gun without orders. The following standards and points of judging for the English setter are taken from Stonehenge: Skull, value 10, nose, 10, ears, lips, and eyes, 4, neck, 6, shoulder and chest, 15 back, quarters and stifles, 15, legs, elbows and hocks, 12, feet, 8, flag, 5, symmetry and quality, 5, texture of coat and feather, 5, color, 5, total value, 100. The points of the English setter may be described as follows. The skull, value 10, has a character peculiar to itself, somewhat between that of a pointer and cocker spaniel, not so heavy as the former's and larger than the latter's. It is without the prominence of the occipital bone so remarkable in the pointer, is also narrower between the ears, and there is a decided brow over the eyes. The nose, value 5, should be long and wide, without any fullness under the eyes there should be in the average dog setter at least four inches from the inner corner of the eye to the end of the nose between the point and the root of the nose there should be a slight depression at all events there should be no fullness and the eyebrows should rise sharply from it The nostrils must be wide apart and large in the openings, and the end should be moist and cool, though many a dog with exceptionally good scenting powers has had a remarkably dry nose, amounting in some cases to roughness, like that of chagrin. In all setters, the end of the nose should be black or dark liver-colored, but in the very best-bred whites or lemon and whites, pink is often met with, and may in them be pardoned. The jaws should be exactly equal in length, a snip nose, or pig jaw, as the receding lower one is called, being greatly against its possessor. Ears, lips, and eyes value four. With regard to ears, they should be shorter than the pointers, and rounded, but not so much as those of the spaniel. The leather should be thin and soft, carried closely to the cheeks, so as not to show the inside, without the slightest tendency to prick the ear, which should be clothed with silky hair little more than two inches in length. The lips also are not so full and pendulous as those of the pointer, but at their angles there should be a slight fullness, not reaching quite to the extent of hanging." the eyes must be full of animation and of medium size the best color being a rich brown and they should be set with their angles straight across the neck value six has not the full rounded muscularity of the pointer being considerably thinner but still slightly arched and set in the head without the prominence of the occipital bone which is so remarkable in that dog it must not be throaty though the skin is loose The shoulders and chest, value 15, should display great liberty in all directions, with sloping, deep shoulder blades and elbows well let down. The chest should be deep rather than wide, though Mr. Laverick insists on the contrary formation, italicizing the word wide in his remarks on page 22 of his book. Possibly it may be owing to this formation that his dogs have not succeeded at any field trial, as above remarked, for the bitches of his breed, notably Countess and Daisy, which I have seen, were as narrow as any setter breeder could desire. I am quite satisfied that on this point Mr. Leverick is altogether wrong. I fully agree with him, however, that the ribs should be well sprung behind the shoulder, and great depth of the back ribs should be especially demanded. Back, quarters, and stifles value fifteen. An arched loin is desirable, but not to the extent of being roached or wheel-backed, a defect which generally tends to a slow, up-and-down gallop. Stiffles well bent and set wide apart to allow the hind legs to be brought forward with liberty in the gallop. Legs, elbows, and hocks value twelve the elbows and toes which generally go together should be straight and if not the pigeon toe or interned leg is less objectionable than the outturn in which the elbow is confined by its close attachment to the ribs. The arm should be muscular and the bone fully developed with strong and broad knees, short pasterns of which the size and point of bone should be as great as possible, a very important point, and their slope not exceeding a very slight deviation from the straight line. Many good judges insist upon a perfectly upright pastern, like that of the foxhound, but it must not be forgotten that the setter has to stop himself suddenly, when at full stretch he catches scent, and to do this with an upright and rigid pastern causes a considerable strain on the ligaments, soon ending in the knuckling over, Hence, a very slight bend is to be preferred. The hind legs should be muscular with plenty of bone, clean, strong hocks, and hairy feet. The feet, value 8, should be carefully examined as upon their capability of standing wear and tear depends the utility of the dog. A great difference of opinion exists as to the comparative merits of the cat and hare foot for standing work foxhound masters invariably select that of the cat, and as they have better opportunities than any other class of instituting the necessary comparison, their selection may be accepted as final. But as setters are especially required to stand wet and heather, it is imperatively necessary that there should be a good growth of hair between the toes and on this account a hair-foot well clothed with hair as it generally is must be preferred to a cat-foot naked as is often the case except on the upper surface The flag, value 5, is in appearance very characteristic of the breed, although it sometimes happens that one or two puppies in a well-bred litter exhibit a curl or other malformation, usually considered to be indicative of a stain. It is often compared to a scimitar, but it resembles it only in respect of its narrowness, the amount of curl in the blade of this Turkish weapon being far too great to make it the model of the setter's flag again it has been compared to a comb but as combs are usually straight here again the simile fails as the setter's flag should have a gentle sweep and the nearest resemblance to any familiar form is to the scythe with its curve reversed the feather must be composed of straight silky hairs and beyond the root the less short hair on a flag the better especially toward the point of which the bone should be fine and the feather tapering with it symmetry and quality value five in character the setter should display a great amount of quality a term which is difficult of explanation though fully appreciated by all experienced sportsmen it means a combination of symmetry as understood by the artist with the peculiar attributes of the breed under examination as interpreted by the sportsman thus a setter possessed of such a frame and outline as to charm an artist would be considered by the sportsman defective in quality if he possessed a curly or harsh coat, or if he had a heavy head with pendant, bloodhound-like jowl and throaty neck. The general outline is very elegant, the more taking to the eye of the artist than that of the pointer. The texture and feather of coat, value five, are much regarded among the setter breeds, a soft, silky hair without curl being considered a cinquainon. The feather should be considerable, and should fringe the hind as well as the forelegs. The color of coat, value 5, is not much insisted on among English setters, a great variety being admitted. These are now generally classed as follows in the order given. 1. Black and white, ticked with large splashes, and more or less marked with black, known as blue belton. 2. Orange and white freckled, known as orange belton. 3. Plain orange, or lemon and white. 4. Liver and white. 5. Black and white, with slight tan markings. 6. Black and white. 7. Liver and white. 8. Pure white. 9. Black. 10. Liver. 11. Red or yellow. To show the present high type of the modern English setter, several portraits of well-known prize winners are presented in this chapter including Daisy Foreman, famous as a bench show winner, whelped June 14, 1885, Cincinnatus and Toledo Blade, both owned by Mr. J. E. Dagger, Toledo, Ohio, renowned as combining both bench and field trial qualities, Rodrigo, owned by the Memphis and Advent Kennels, Plantagenet by Dashing Monarch out of Petrol. Rowdy Rod, owned by Mr. George W. Ewing, Fort Wayne, Indiana, and Gloucester, owned by Mr. James L. Breeze, Tuxedo, New York. By means of these portraits, and incidentally the cover for this audiobook, the exquisite symmetry combined with strength in The English Setter are thus made apparent to the eye. End of Section 2 The English Setter